The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now... For our featured presentation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. You can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. The other day, somebody asked me, what advice would you give somebody who wanted to start a podcast? My answer was simple and to the point. If you're going to do a show, make sure it's something that you would listen to. Otherwise, why are you doing it? I've always enjoyed doing this podcast, and yes, for the record, I do listen to it as well. Sure. I complain and gripe about the amount of research that has to go into some of these episodes, but doing the research sometimes is a lot of fun because I love discovering things about some of my favorite films. Now, one thing that I did not envision when I started this podcast four years ago was some of the connections that I would make. Now, one of those connections is filmmaker Phil Giovanno. I was introduced to Phil in November of 2015, shortly before the release of his latest film, The Veil, that stars Jessica Alba and Thomas Jane, which, I might add, is currently available on Netflix. Now, longtime listeners of the show will know that I really like that movie and I invited Phil to come on the show to discuss the behind the scenes of the movie. Since that initial appearance, Phil has become a frequent guest on the show. Now imagine if you had an opportunity to discuss some of your favorite films with the people who made them. Well, that's the case with today's episode. You see, Phil is the director of the 1990 film State of Grace that stars Sean Penn, Gary Oldman, Ed Harris, Robin Wright, John Turturro, Burgess Meredith, and John C. Riley, just to name a few. State of Grace was released during a time when most films that dealt with the mob focused on the Italian mafia. State of Grace tells the story of the sometimes overshadowed Irish mafia in New York City. It is a gritty street film that does not hold anything back. All the actors in the film give phenomenal performances, especially Gary Oldman. A State of Grace is his first breakout role in the United States, and one only needs to watch five minutes of Oldman in the film to understand and realize that he truly is one of the great actors of our generation. So back to what I was just saying. Take a minute and think about a few of your favorite films. Now imagine if you got to sit down and chat with the person who made one of those films. Well, that's exactly what I got to do in this episode. Here is my conversation with Phil Giovanno about his amazing film, State of Grace. Once again, I am pleased to welcome back to the show writer-director Phil Giovanno. Now, Phil, I'm a fan of everything that you do. I'm a big fan of all of your work. And one of my favorite movies that you've made is 1990's State of Grace. Now, I wonder if we could just start at the beginning and you can sort of tell me and tell the listeners how you came on board this project. Well, it was actually uh, right at the end of 1988, and I had just finished Rattle and Hum. It's funny because I had read an article in the New York Times about the Irish mafia, if you want to call it that, or the Irish gangs in New York, uh, particularly this one gang called the Westies. And I thought, wow, that could make a really interesting movie. And about a week later, I got a call from an executive at Orion Pictures named Mark Platt, who funnily enough has gone on to be a very big successful producer. He's one of the producers of La La Land. And um, he, he said, look, I've got this script it's called State of Grace, and it's about you know kind of the Irish mafia in New York City. It's kind of loosely based on these guys called the Westies. And I said, 
are you kidding me? I just a week ago read an article about these guys and I thought it would be a great idea for a movie. He goes, well, we've got this script. Would you like to take a look? So I did. And I and obviously I, I really liked it. Now, the script was the script was pretty different from the movie that we made. I went back to New York and I and I met with the producers and we immediately started talking about ways to revise the script because the script, just for instance, the original script opened with the Terry Noonan character, Sean Penn's character in, in Rikers Island uh, as a prisoner. And he there's a big prison breakout action sequence. He makes it out to uh, the Hudson and a speedboat pulls up and he jumps in the water and swims out to the speedboat, gets in the speedboat and it's being driven by Gary Oldman's character, by Jackie. He's driving a speedboat, if you can imagine that. <laughs> and um, there's a helicopter chase under the bridges up the river, up into Harlem, where they finally escape. He then rejoins the gang as a, um, you know, kind of undercover cop still, but the entire breakout was staged in order for him to get back with the gang. So that was like, you know, a 10, 15 page sequence, big, you know, kind of diehardy action sequence. Well, you can imagine that's a very, very different tone <laughs> from the movie we made. I was much more interested in, you know, kind of the, shall we call it the Sidney Lumet version of the movie, where, which was more about kind of the gang on the streets. You know, I did a lot of research on these guys and they really were, they were very dangerous and, you know, they were, they were chopping off guys' heads and carrying them around in bowling bags and, you know, displaying them in bars and, and um, they would do a lot of the dirty work for the Italian mafia. And the two main guys were Jimmy Coonan and Mickey Featherstone. And, and that's basically Ed Harris would have been Jimmy Coonan and, and Gary Oldman would have been Mickey Featherstone, both of which were serving life sentences at the time. They had all been, been busted. But so I came in and I said, look, you know, I'd really rather do the Lamette Scorsese version of this than the, than the action undercover cop movie. And they agreed. And I worked with Dennis McIntyre, who uh, was the original screenwriter and pl playwright for a couple of months into 1989. And then he actually got ill. And it's very sad. He, he had cancer and he got ill and he unfortunately died before we finished the movie or just as we finished the movie. And uh, so David Rabe, the playwright, kind of best known for Hurley Burley, uh, came on to the project. And David did a, a very big, I thought should have been credited rewrite on the film. Um, he did not get credit because on an original script, you have to change X amount to get credit. It's this complicated set of rules. And uh, so he did not get credit, but he deserved credit. They both did, did a terrific job on the script. And so then David and I developed the script into kind of March, April of that year. And pretty much as we were developing it, they gave us the green light to go to go forward. I mean, it was kind of, it was a very, very different time, obviously, 1989 versus today. And and Orion was an incredible company. I mean, these are the guys that had made Apocalypse Now and Raging Bull and Rocky and Annie Hall and Manhattan. And uh, they'd done all Jonathan Demme's movies. They were really incredible guys, New York based too, which made them kind of have a different perspective than your, your Hollywood based production uh, entities. So yeah, they gave us the green light. And the first person that came onto the picture was actually Gary Oldman. I had seen Sid and Nancy and loved him in it, thought he'd be incredible as Jackie. I mean, he had never, I'd done an American 
film. He's British, but but I still thought, here's this guy. I mean, the way he played Sid Vicious, he could certainly play Jackie Flannery. And uh, I went over to London and, and sat down with him for breakfast, and he agreed. By the end of breakfast, he shook my hand and said, I'm in. So Gary came on first. And then the studio and I, we really wanted to go after Sean. And they'd had a good relationship with Sean. They'd done Colors with Sean, the LAPD movie, the gang movie. So they had a good relationship with him. And they set up a meeting. I met Sean in L.A. And he also, uh, after our meeting, shook my hand and said, I'm on. So kind of in a couple of weeks' time, we had uh, Sean and Gary. And uh, that then, of course, you know, set the ball rolling for everybody else. So did you individually meet with every cast member or every predominant member of the cast? Yeah, there were no there was no cast attached when I came on. So it was completely blank slate, which, again, was pretty rare. I mean, typically there's, you know, uh, uh, like, for instance, when I came on Final Analysis, my next film, Richard Gere, was already attached. You know, so usually uh, when I came on Gridiron Gang, The Rock was was attached like it's it's. You know, when I did Heaven's Prisoners, Alec was attached. It's usually movies tend to get moved along when actors are attached. But um, in this case, it was just an open book. And uh, yeah, so I met with Ed Harris. Ed had come off the abyss and was exhausted by his underwater adventures with Jim Cameron. And so um, he just said, look, I just I need a break. I can't I can't come back to work. And he passed. And so then, you know, we continued casting for months and uh just could not get the right guy to play frankie and i think it was sean who said to me maybe you ought to give ed another try and i said i said yeah that's a good idea you think and sean knew ed they actually were were neighbors and he said i think we ought to go after him again and 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 he had he had passed before i had sean on board so we went back after ed and with just a couple of weeks before production we were able to bring ed on at the last minute. Robin Wright was kind of funny in that we auditioned pretty much every young actress in Hollywood for that part. Narrowed it down to three or four of them. We had our final auditions at the Sunset Marquee Hotel in, in LA and Sean wanted to be a part of those readings. So he came in and, you know, the other actresses read and things were going well. And then in walks Robin Wright. And I mean, it was over. There were, I mean, There were sparks in that room from the second she walked through the door and I could see it and Bonnie Turman, the casting director, could see it. And it was it was just it was lights out. And they they did a couple of scenes and they were fantastic together. And of course, you know, the rest is history that married and had had two children and uh, all of that. So, yeah, she came in and and blew Sean away. And, you know, he fell for her as well during the film. Tell me about the decision to cast Burgess Meredith. He only has a very small scene in the film, albeit a crucial scene in the film. I wonder when discussions were happening about casting that particular part. I mean, did you always envision that you were going to have a uh, sort of an iconic movie star of the past 50 years in it? Or were you just going to cast, you know, whoever you thought fit the role? Well, um, no, originally we had, we had auditioned a lot at, a lot of New York actors for the part and just nobody was really jumping out at me. And at one point I, I, I'd, I was watching TV and Rocky came on, you know, he's just so fantastic in that. And I thought to myself, I wonder what he's up to. And we were, we were in production. We were now we're shooting and I didn't have the role cast. It was the last role we cast in the movie was Burgess Meredith. I called our casting director and I said, what if, you know, there's only two days work. 
said, what if we could get Burgess Meredith to come in for two days? And it was just, you know, kind of a Hail Mary. And we sent him the pages. And by then we had, you know, John Turturro, we had Rob, we had Ed, we had Sean, we had Gary. So it was a, you know, it was a pretty strong cast. And I think that obviously actors are attracted to other great actors. And uh, he flew in and, and did his two days. And it was absolutely, I mean, I had as a little little guy watched Batman replayed the Penguin. You know, I, I've known Burgess Meredith since I was a little tyke and, uh, or known him on screen, I should say. And he was so wonderful. So, I mean, you got it. And you, if anyone ever wants to go back and just look at his history, I mean, the, the, if you go through and look at his credits and the amount of work he's done and the filmmakers he's worked with and you know it's just unbelievable so it was a real honor and and he couldn't have been nicer couldn't have been more fun to work with i will say though it was interesting he flown in and it was it was a pretty long scene it's about a four or five page scene he was we started shooting the scene and he was and sean was so great with him so again so respectful because i mean here's this legend and he was struggling to remember his lines. And he was a little older at that time, obviously. And he kept flubbing his lines and getting upset with himself and getting frustrated and he couldn't get through it. And so I said, you know what? It's okay, Bridges, let's do this. I'm gonna turn around the camera and we'll do all of Sean's side of the scene. Everything toward the front of the room where Sean comes in. We're gonna shoot everything toward Sean today. And why don't you, you know, take it easy today. You'll get familiar with it with the camera on your back. Cause I'd started looking at Burgess. And I turned everything around and you get comfortable with the dialogue and all that on your back. And that way, if you flub, it'll be okay. Sean can keep going and we can feed you, you know, whatever we need to feed you the lines or whatever. And he was all, oh, he felt so bad. And, and I said, it's no big deal. No big deal. And we shot out Sean's side. And then at the end of the day, he said, I'm so sorry. You know, I got to tell you, I got on the plane. I glanced at the scene and I thought, I got no problem. I can wing this. I got this. I'll just come in and wing this scene. I didn't realize it was a little bit of a, a bigger scene than I thought. I, uh, don't you worry. Tonight, I'm going to go to my hotel room, and I'm going to come out swinging tomorrow. I said, okay, Brutus, that sounds great. Well, sure enough, the next day, he comes in. We turn on the camera. Every word, every beat, every moment. It was, it, and I mean, perfect, perfect. He didn't make one mistake. He just said, you know, he he thought he was going to kind of be able to come in for a couple of days and wing it. And he realized it was a much, it was kind of a bigger bite than he had thought. So it was really, really. And then, oh, we just had a terrific goodbye and, and, um, he couldn't have been nicer. So it was a, a great, one of my all time great memories, um, as a filmmaker working with him. Let's talk a little bit about the setting for the film. Now, there's no question that the movie was always going to take place in New York city. And, This is pre-Rudy Giuliani cleaned up the city, New York. So I have to imagine that a set designer didn't have to go too much to the extreme for some of these locations because they probably really existed in this New York. So talk a little bit about, you know, what it was like scouting locations in this era of New York City. You're right. It was uh, the city. This is back in the era of the, the, you know... Subways are all graffitied and everything. I mean, it's dirty and trash and and you know it was it, it was still a, a much a pretty violent place. I mean, on <clears throat> for instance, we were shooting up in in Harlem. We were shooting the um, sequence where Sean Penn meets John Turturro at this trash can fire, and and it looks like Sean kills Turturro. 
in a shootout. While we were shooting that scene, suddenly two cars come racing around the corner. They realize they've raced right into a movie set. The two cars screech to a stop. One kid jumps out of a car, out of his car, and comes running through the, through the street, through our set. We were shooting in the street at the time. And two other guys behind him, both shooting handguns at him. Boom, 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 boom. Trying oh to God. kill this kid. And right through the middle of our set, bullets flying. And right behind them come two police cars. And cops come out. They don't shoot because they see they're on a movie set. And they chase the guys down. And at the other end of the block, end up capturing all of them and uh, haul them off for attempted murder right through our set. I don't even know what to say. So there was gunfire. There was gunfire. My first day, uh, my first day in my apartment in New York City on that movie, I came downstairs. I walked out the front door and across the street, two guys were about 15, 20 feet away from each other, like 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 in the Old West, shoot, bam, 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 just shooting at each other across the street. And I just like ducked down behind a car. I was downtown in, in the village. You know, this, this wasn't like the Bronx. And they were shooting it out on the street. So a couple of times there was like, yeah, good old fashioned gunplay going on uh, uh, where we were. So it was, yeah, it was definitely much more of the Wild West. You look at that sequence, for instance, uh, for people who know New York, the sequence downtown where uh, Sean and Gary are upstairs in that abandoned uh, loft and down below it at uh, Finelli's is is Ed Harris and uh, Joe Vitarelli or the character called Borelli um, having their sit down. That street that they come down when they're about to, to kill Borelli, that's the Mercer Hotel is what they go by. And if you look at that, it is an abandoned building covered in graffiti and old ripped up posters. And the building that they're in that's abandoned, that's now the Prada store. So the Prada store and the Mercer Hotel are now, you know, in the, in the locations where we shot that sequence. And that street, Mercer, is like the mecca of Soho. And at that time, it was a dump. It was just ripped up, empty, abandoned, gutted, boarded up building. So we were really lucky to capture it at a time before it became disney You know, I think a lot of New York has become, unfortunately. And I think that's what I'm trying to really emphasize to some of the younger listeners is I remember going to New York in 1995. And by that point, it was already well on its way to being the New York that we know today. Like Universal City Walk. Yeah, the, the um, you know, you look at there's a sequence, it's very brief, but in the middle of Times Square where Ed Harris gets out yeah. of his car and walks up to a van and talks to Gary and and Sean before they go downtown for that sequence in Soho. Again, you look at Times Square, it's just this kind of empty, uh, beat up, you know, the strip clubs were still there, the porno theaters were still there. I mean, it was still this kind of beat up 42nd Street slummy place you know, you go now and it's a part, you know, it's an amusement park. It's just night and day. So, yeah, we were able to capture that. I mean, scouting, I'll tell you another funny story because, you know, I had only been in New York one time as a kid before I made that movie. One time. So I come from L.A. and I, uh, you know, we go on our first location scout and everybody's with me, all the New Yorkers, all all the entire crew are local New Yorkers. And we get out of the van, it's about eight or nine people. And I say, OK, great. Well, the first thing I'd like to do is I'd really like to walk around Hell's Kitchen and really kind of get to know the area. So let's go do that. And they all look at me kind of uh, embarrassed. And then uh, the production designer, Patricia von Brandenstein, a very famous production designer, says, uh, um, Phil, um, we're in Hell's Kitchen. It's like, 
okay, great. That's good to know. Well, let's look around this area. Then. And so, I mean, I didn't even know enough to, to know that kind of like what defined the radius of Hell's Kitchen at the time. Of course I did later and, and, and really um, got into it. But so I, I, I kind of brought an outsider's point of view, which oddly enough, you know, um, I remember Alan Parker talking about this when he made Mississippi Burning, being British and going down to the South and making that film. He talks a lot about being an outsider and being unfamiliar all these interesting things were fresh to him and exciting to him and interesting. But for the locals, they're like, well, yeah, that that church, we see that every day or that farmhouse or this city or this street or that location. He's like, they're incredible. And I think there's a very interesting thing about coming into an environment and being unfamiliar with it. There's an excitement. The environment brings about an excitement in you and an inspiration to you that familiarity kind of you just go yeah i mean it's uh, we're on the street all the time what's the big deal but for me i was like this bar is amazing this downtown bar we shot in or this alleyway or this street and all the new yorkers were like yeah we yeah we've been here before and i'm like well i haven't i think it's awesome and, and so it really i think gave me an extra perspective on how to shoot that movie that i think um had i been a, and i ended up living there for two years and i became much 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 more familiar obviously uh, I ended up living in New York for, for three years total, actually, and and obviously I became more familiar with all of it. But I always thought as I as I as I became more of a, a bit of a New Yorker for a while there, how I was lucky to walk in unfamiliar yeah. with um, with New York, because the truth is, state of grace in terms of locations are there are locations stolen from all over the city. We imply we're in Hell's Kitchen, but we might have been downtown. We imply we're in Little Italy. We might have been uptown. We might have been, you know, over in in Brooklyn. Like we, I picked the locations for the locations rather than them literally being where they said they were supposed to be. I mean, New York City really is a character in this film. That, that was intentional. I mean, that was really something I talked about a lot. In fact. On all my movies, I try to the environment. So, for instance, in Final Analysis, it was San Francisco. In Heaven's Prisoners, it was New Orleans. In Three O'Clock High, it was the high school. Yeah. In State of Grace, obviously, it was New York City. And even Gridiron Gang, it was the prison. I, I, or in in The Veil, it was the woods. You know that they were in. I try to pick an environment and very, very consciously say the environment is meant to play is a character, and just like a character. There are things the character would do and there are things the character wouldn't do. So all the time they would show me really interesting location. I'd say, yeah, this is great, but it's not the state of grace location. It's not the character of state of grace. This location, this bar is so visual. I remember when I worked with Dean Tavalaris, maybe the greatest production designer in film history, along with Ken Adam. And he, you know, he did final analysis with me. He had done Apocalypse Now, Godfather 1, Godfather 2, One from the Heart. And he was showing me these great San Francisco locations, his hometown. And I'm like, Dean, this is awesome, but I don't feel like it's the look of like what I'm seeing for this movie. And he, and of course, he really got into it and really um, loved that I was willing to reject good things in order to keep it consistent with the look and style of the character I was after for the location. So everything was determined by that. Let's talk for a moment about the intrepid. There are some pretty powerful scenes in the film that include the intrepid in the background. And, and, and like I said, for those who aren't sure what I'm talking about, the intrepid is this floating uh, aircraft carrier museum. And I'm wondering 
What drew you to film with the Intrepid in the background? Well, that's interesting you bring that because, and this just shows you how much of, of filmmaking is luck. So originally that scene was written on the deck of the Intrepid. Oh, okay. So what, what the deal was is that the Westies had control over security of the Intrepid back in the day. They had kind of, you know, uh, rest, wrestled it, wrestled the job. So they were able to do whatever they wanted in and around the Intrepid. So I thought, oh, my God, well, what a better place to set a scene. And we had established that they had control of it. So it wasn't bizarre. They were there. And we scouted it. And I was going to shoot up on the Intrepid. And then during production, they had gotten a hold of the screenplay, the museum. <laughs> yeah. And they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not going to have a murder on the deck of the Intrepid. So we got kicked out. Okay. <laughs> and I was so bummed and pissed and couldn't believe it. So then I said, well, wait a second. What about that empty dock right next door? And, and they said, oh, we can get that. And I said, well, and can the Intrepid stop us from lighting it up and shooting it in the background? They said, no. You can, you know, that's like, it's like a building. Like, you know, they can't stop you from shooting a building. You know, they can stop you from being in the building, but not in front of the building. Okay. So I said, fantastic. And then I turned to Jordan Cronenweth, the great cinematographer who had, is probably most famous for Blade Runner. And I said, so Jordan, uh, how do you feel about lighting an aircraft carrier? <laughs> and sure enough, you know, he lit it up. It ended up being a hundred times better with the aircraft carrier behind it. It was a great lesson actually to me that I realized that being in something or on something that's incredibly visual, you're excited because you're in or on the thing that's the big deal. But if you get back from it and use it as the background, then you're actually seeing the thing, and which we wouldn't have. You know, we'd establish the aircraft carrier and our, as they went up on it. But once you're on the deck, it would have been a flat. What was kind of cool about up on the deck is the cityscape was you know because you were higher you were above the roads so you looked right into the cityscapes all around it you know on the um west sides so that was pretty cool but it ended up better so the whole reason that that sequence ends up looking the way it did and ended up being as good and better by the way than it would have been up there because i scouted it and, and staged it up there and then had to change it it was so much better down on uh, the doc. So it all worked out. I want to talk about a few of the actors, starting with Gary Oldman. So just a few quick questions here. One, how well known was Gary Oldman to American audiences at the time he was doing State of Grace? I mean, we all know Gary Oldman now. His body of work speaks for itself. But I'm curious if he was well known to American audiences. And two, the character that he plays in the film is, for lack of a better word, menacing. I mean, he's the kind of guy that if I was in a bar and this guy showed up, I would be out the door. So what did Gary bring to the table? What was he like to work with? Well, Gary was completely unknown to American audiences and, and really only a few people in in Hollywood really knew who he was. Um, you know, and again, through uh, Sid and Nancy was really the, the film that brought him to everybody's attention. It was incredible. Again, you see, Orion Pictures supported the filmmaker. And that's why State of Grace is by far and away my most pure directorial experience. Because they hired me. I said, I want to change the script. I said, okay. I said, you know, I would like to hire a guy like Gary Oldman that nobody's heard of in the United States of America. They said, okay. 
I'd like it to star Sean Penn, who at the time was still punching photographers and yeah. had just divorced Madonna and was not known to be the easiest guy. They let me wait to the middle of the movie to hire Burgess Meredith. They paid John Turturro what they needed to pay him to get him to do a week in the film. You know, they they supported me. They, they let me go to originally, uh, as some people might know, that U2 was originally going to score the movie. And uh, they had agreed to score it. They'd seen it when it was in post. And they ended up, Octoon Baby went long. So they weren't able to score the movie. They had to keep working on their album. And uh, they were going to do it after Octoon Baby and before they went on tour. But it didn't work out timing-wise. So they let me, oh, I don't know, go to Italy and get Ennio Morricone to score <laughs> the movie. Which is insane. It's insane. I mean, the support was unlike anything I experienced before or since. And so that's, it's always interesting to me that State of Grace ends up being the movie that most people mention about my career. I mean, it's slightly embarrassing how long ago it was, <clears throat> but it is what it is. And uh, I'm still thrilled to have been able to make it. And I am lucky to have been able to make it under those circumstances, you know, and, and at the time I thought, Oh, this is going to be cool making movies like this for the rest of my life. <laughs> oh my God. And little did I know what an anomaly that experience was. It was a one-off hole in one as uh, De Niro would call it in uh, New York, New York, a major chord. And I, and it, and it just happened, you know? Um, and, and luckily I enjoyed every minute of it, but that's how I got Gary Oldman. And Gary, um, so Gary comes in, and what's so funny is he's, he's theatrically trained. So he's laughing it up on set. He's joking. He's doing imitations. He's, like, hanging out. And then you'd say, okay, Gary, we got to go. Get him. And he'd get in the thing, and boom, he's Jackie Flannery. Like, in a millisecond, a heartbeat, boom, he's the character. And he's in there, and he's playing it, and he's doing it. You call cut, and he snaps back out of it. And, and he's like, take one, take two, take three. You're, you're literally after take three saying to yourself, Jeez, Jesus, how can it be better than those? You don't really know. It's incredible. You just go, you want to do another for the hell of it? I mean, but you got it. He's a two, three take actor. It's, it's you know, he and I did another show um, called Dead End for Delia, uh, it was on in Showtime uh, for a series called Fallen Angels, as Sidney Pollack did. And we had no time and money on that. It was one take, two takes, the entire, you know, five, six days shooting, just one, two takes. Boom, boom. If we get it in one and say, you good? I'm good. We go on. That's how, great he, that's how great an actor Gary is. So he would snap in and out of it. He was fast. He was easy. He was so great to direct. He and I became super close friends for many years after that. And in fact, he had a part in Final Analysis and I had to cut him out. He was so good in Final Analysis. He had like three scenes. He stole the movie. And when we previewed the movie, everyone wanted more of Gary Oldman oh, no. in the movie. So I had to cut him out because it was a complete distraction. You know, where Burgess Meredith had kind of worked for me, Gary, Gary blew it because he was by then people knew him. Um, and, and they wanted more of him. And it was, uh, I literally went to Gary and said, Gary, I have to cut you out of the movie. He's like, Oh my God, did I, why? Cause I sucked. I said, no, you were so good. The audience wants to see more and more and more of you, but it was a teeny little subplot that I, that I couldn't continue to pursue in the story. So that's how, you know, Gary and I did three projects back to back after that. And, um, and, uh, we were set to do, to do, uh, Don DeLillo's Libra, uh, where he was going to play, um, Lee Harvey Oswald. 
Um, I was set to do that with him as well. But then um, JFK came along and, and Oliver was able to squash our movie mm. and take Gary over to that one. Um, but it was really cool. Gary asked me and said, is it okay if I go do his? I really want to play Oswald. And I said, what am I going to do? Mine's dead. Uh, it's a different story. Good old Oliver, JFK, and Libra. So anyway, he was a dream to work with. But what blew me away the most was his ability to snap into character, which was interesting because Sean is much more of a method actor. So Sean warms up into a scene. He kind of feels it out. Take one, take two, take three, tries different things. Slow, fast, big, small, this, trying to feel and finding it, finding it, kind of like finding his moves. And maybe after, I don't know how many takes, but after a handful of takes, he starts to get in the groove and starts to get there. So you might get up to 10, 12, 13 takes before it's like really revved up and ready to go. And then, of course, it's awesome. He's Sean Penn. I mean, my God. But it was it was really an interesting trick because Gary was pow, ready to nail it on take one. And you've got Sean in the same scene who's really kind of finding it on take one. So I used to say to Gary, you know, Gary would do a couple and be like, I just gave it my best shot, but Sean's not in it yet. And I said, no, 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 you got to hold back. You got to just rehearse. It's almost like rehearsal on film. Just rehearse it, walk through it, stay in first or second gear. Don't get the fourth or fifth, stay in low. So I had to hold Gary back. And then as Sean would would ramp up, I'd turn to Gary and say, we're there. Unleash the dogs, you know, let right. it rip. And then Gary would would go full bore. And that's how I eventually would get them to, to meet in the middle on, on most days. So that actually begs a very interesting question. You had a lot of different personalities on the set. How did everybody get along? Well, you know, the good thing was is that Ed and Sean were already friends, um, you know, and, and knew each other uh, from – you know, just hanging out. So that was great. So, so they, you know, but it was interesting because Ed is also very kind of, at least at that time on that show, very methody. And he stayed pretty much in his character. Sean stayed pretty much in his character. Gary would switch in and out of the character. Robin was just pissed off all the time because that was kind of her character. And so um, it was like, you know, it was funny. They, as, as professionals, they got along fine. As characters, every day on the set was like living with them. Even though Gary was going in out of characters, kind of like the manic insanity of, of, of uh, Jackie. But still, I mean, Gary was into it too. He'd go home in his wardrobe, sleep in it, and come back having not showered anything Still, because, you know, it looks like this guy is sleeping in his clothes. Yep. And in fact, Gary was sleeping in his clothes um, for real. So Gary was equally, you know, uh, into the role. And I'd say as the movie got along, everyone was pretty much playing out their characters uh, day and night. I mean, even on the weekends. I mean, it was like everyone was in character. So some days when there was conflict, like if like that day, there's a scene where they go downtown and they shake down this this kind of bar owner and make him buy a bunch of Bushmills and they end up in a fight amongst themselves. And then, uh, Ed ends up throwing Sean around after the scene and they all start fighting and Gary jumps over the bar and gets into it. I think there were, there was one broken nose, two or three broken fingers, um, some cuts and scrapes, bottles, glass. I mean, you had to get in the middle of, I mean, me and the AD would have to like run into the middle in the stunt coordinator and pull them off of each other. 
So it was not, yeah, it wasn't like, you know, everyone was, uh, you know, playing Scrabble off to the side and then we went and, and, and did the scene. It was pretty intense. I mean, they all carried their guns during the scenes, whether you saw them or not. It got deeper and deeper and darker and darker as the show went on. I had a great working relationship with everyone. Like there was no trouble with them to me, but amongst themselves, it, it, like they liked and respected each other. In other words, there weren't professional conflicts, but man, if they were in a scene where there was going to be conflict, it was tense. You know, Sean would be stalking one corner. Ed would be stalking another corner. They'd be looking at each other like, you know, like boxers ready to go at it. And then I'd call action and they would. One actor we haven't talked about yet is a very young John C. Riley. So I'm wondering, you know, how did he come on board the project? And what do you think about how big his career has gotten? Oh, my God. Well, the thing is, so what's really funny is that Sean had done Casualties of War prior. There's the movie directly prior to us. He said, you got to audition this guy, John C. Riley. He's just this great up and coming actor. And you ought to you ought to have him, you know, come in. And for Stevie. He came in and he read and he was, I mean, you could clearly see he was overqualified for that small a part even then. Every single day that he came, he added some form of improv, some little moment, some little quirk. I mean, he elevated what was, you know, kind of just, you know, the sidekick guy who gets killed to a memorable character like he always does. And I am not surprised in the slightest that he has been able to do all the things he's been able to do. It, it was so obvious, and you feel kind of bad. It's funny when that happens on a film, when you realize you have someone who's way more talented and has so much more to give than the role allows. That was one of those cases. And so, uh, but still, he completely, I mean, that scene where he comes out, you know, before Ed Harris slits his throat, uh, he's pretty priceless in that. You know, it was kind of a, a, a funny thing, too, because uh, Ed, who decided that he was going to add a little extra edge to the scene, switched out his rubber knife uh, for a real knife. Really? So when he comes up and uh, but it was like a switchblade, it was like a giant like butcher's knife. And so he comes walking up to, to John and they start talking and talking and. As they're saying, you know, he's going, Frankie, what do you mean? You know, come on, come on. What are you? you know, he's saying, John's starting to get more and more upset. Ed opens up his jacket and I'm behind Ed. I'm over Ed shooting toward, toward John C. Riley. And Ed, I guess, is revealing a real knife. And they're about to jump on each other and tackle him to the ground. And he's got, and, and John C. Riley's like looking down, like going, wait a second. Like, you know, he's thinking to himself, is he going to keep going and jump on me with that real knife? I mean, he didn't have the rubber knife. He had the real knife, a real knife, which I do not know where he got it. And then finally, just before they're supposed to tackle him to the ground, John Charlie goes, Phil, Phil, wait a second, wait a second. Ed has a real knife. Is he supposed to have a real knife right now? And I'm like, no, 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 cut, cut. Ed, what are you doing? Ed turns around with like this devilish grin on his face. I'm like, Ed, you cannot bring a real knife and attack this guy. So I took it away. So we start doing the next take and Ed walks up and this time he opens up. He's got a meat cleaver. I swear to God. And John's like, Phil, now he's got a meat cleaver. I'm like, Jesus, Ed, what are you doing? And then Ed's laughing. And John's like, like, this is not funny. But so he's getting more freak. Like with each take, what's this guy going to come walking up with? Well, finally, when he really attacked, he, you know, he had the rubber knife, of course. But, you know, these guys would fuck with each other. There was no there was no two ways about it. I mean, 
the opening scene with uh, John Turturro and Sean Penn, man, they were going at each other. I mean, they were just ripping each other during that scene. And, um, you know, a lot of it didn't make it into the film, but it, but it just created this incredible tension between the two of them. And so there was a lot of, you know, there were some great, I mean, Turturro's an incredible actor. I mean, to get him just for a few days like I did, it's unbelievable. And and he, you know, so you put Sean and John in a room, or you put Sean and Ed and Gary, and Robin Wright, by the way, can hold her own too. She was not afraid of any of those guys. She is as tough as Sean Penn. Why do you think she could be married to him all exactly. those years? She <laughs> is tough. And I mean, in a really, like, as we all know now, I mean, it's really nice that she's had this whole kind of second career now. I mean, not second career, but like, you know, this, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, you know, she took a lot, of, took some time off, you know, to raise the kids. And now she's back full force. And it's just so fantastic that, you know, the audience, <clears throat> today's audience are getting to see all that talent. And um, yeah, she was rip roaring and ready to rock. That scene, there's a sequence where she and Sean go at it after she confronts him in a hotel room. It's kind of flop house and she's gone and seen her shrink and she doesn't know, she, you know, she's all upset with him. And for those that haven't seen the movie, I don't want to give too much away, but I, I guess, you know, he's an undercover cop and, and she figures it out and, and he, or he's told her, I should say. And, and, uh, she and he, they went at it like cats and dogs that night. Oh my God. Because, you know, you call cut, and they still keep arguing and fighting and telling you to shut the fuck up. And keep, no, you, I'm not done. Oh, you think they can see it? I mean, just keep. So the so what a lot of what the shoot was, the emotions that the scene. So if I had a scene, like where they're all sitting around a bar laughing, having a good time, you'd have a kind of laughing good time day. If it was just a scene where they're going to kill somebody, like, you know, the day Ed Harris had to kill the night at the Intrepid, where Ed Harris had to kill uh, um, Gary Oldman, that was a rough tough tense night because ed is in the mode of believing he's going to come murder his brother and sean is in the mode of i'm about to discover my best friend dead at the hands of his brother who i should have protected um and so you know these guys and you know and gary on the other hand is like i'm oblivious i'm just here chucking rocks into the water you know gary was like i don't know what's about to happen i'm just like drunk and couldn't care less And and until he realizes ed has the gun now, speaking of drinking for a moment, there is a lot of drinking that goes on in the movie. So I'm wondering if you're allowed to tell me uh, how much actual drinking was going on, or was that just all prop alcohol? Well, you know, you're not supposed to allow your your actors to drink during shooting. Everyone knows that, right? So, And I would never have allowed my actors to do such a thing. Now, perhaps they snuck some real beers into the scene. Perhaps they snuck some real Johnny Walker into the scene. Perhaps there was some of that going on. I'll just put it this way. It was a method acting experience. You know, the nice thing was, is that, for instance, I mean, the most the most obvious scene in the film is where Sean Penn gets very, very drunk and confronts Robin Wright in bed and and admits that he's a, as he says, Judas cop. And Sean came to me and he said, I want to drink for this scene. I don't want to act drunk. I want to be a little drunk. And I really, really respected that because he could have done it without asking me. He could have just done it. He could have just shown up that way. And what was I going to say or do about it? But he, he had, you know, he was really, really great collaborator. Sean's one of those guys, when he decides you're on the same team, he's an incredibly loyal, supportive guy. 
like really, he was really terrific to me. So anyway, I said, yeah, I said, look, just the main thing is you just got to moderate it because we got a whole night of shooting to do, you know? So he said, yeah, yeah, no, I, I've done it before. I can, you know, I have this, my techniques. I'm like, okay. So he did, he got a little drunk. He was drinking the Johnny Walkers. He's doing the thing. And of course, then Robin's getting all mad at him. Like, you don't need that. You can act the scene. What are you doing that for? You know, because of course she's revving up for the scene too, right? So they're like, he's like, let me do my thing. You do yours. You and they're all arguing about stuff, you know, on like again, cats and dogs, and you know, because they're revving up for the scene, getting more and more tense. So he does. We get there. We shoot the whole scene, and you know, and then at the end, he's like, okay, Phil. So now's the part where I have to go throw up in the toilet. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> And he says, okay, I'm ready. And I go, well, what do you mean by ready? He goes, I'm ready to really throw up. No, 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 no. Don't really throw up. That, you know, you're going to put your head in the toilet. I'll never even know that you did or didn't throw up. I'll just put the sound in. I won't see it. He's like, oh, no, I'm going to really do it. I'm like, no, no, Sean. And then I, I go, okay, here we go, roll it. And he goes right in. I look at him off camera to my right. He's sticking his finger down his throat and runs into the bathroom and blah, throws oh. it all up into the toilet. Oh, my God. So... Yeah, that's the, that's kind of the most. I mean, so there was a night of uh, it was controlled and it was uh, part of the scene. But what I thought was so amazing is that he built it knowing he had to get to the point where in the scene it required him throwing up in the toilet after he told her his secret. And sure enough, it all happened. I want to talk a little bit about character motivation for a moment, specifically Ed Harris's character. Now, throughout the film, he is hell bent on joining forces or at least working with the italian mafia like i mentioned to you before we started recording you know i rewatched the film again last night and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about his character's backstory and why he's so motivated to become partners or at least work like i said at least work with the italian mafia well it's interesting that you asked that because um i think it's like the fifth time i've said it. it's interesting that you asked that sure. <laughs> <laughs> um but anyway, it, it, you have good questions. Um, originally, in the script, the film opened not with the sequence that's in the movie of Sean getting ready with John Turturro and then going and, and having the, the shootout in the, in, in the Bronx. It opened with these two older actors had control of the Westies, which was a, it's a true story. And they were older Irish guys. One of them was played by the amazing British actor, Michael Gambon. So Michael Gambon, later known as Dumbledore, is in, was in State of Grace. And so again, another incredible actor who got cut out of the movie. So the movie opened with Gary Oldman um, and, and Ed Harris meeting with these two older guys. And, and Gary and Ed is pitching them, expanding their operations and working with the Italians. And the two older guys say, no, 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 we just stay in the West Side, we're Hell's Kitchen, you two, you know, wildcatters, you know, they, they, they tell him to stand down. And Ed leaves the bar with Gary and is all pissed off and says, you know, fuck these guys, we're going to, you know, we're going to do what we want to do. And then, so Gary is, is cruising down the street, he sees Michael Gambon walking along this next day. And he calls him over to the car and Gary Oldman pulls out a gun and blows his brains out right there on the street and drives away. And then Ed Harris goes into a bar and meets the other guy. He and, he and his uh, partner, his sidekick, R.D. Call, you know, the gentleman with the 
really great face who eats the peanuts after he kills that guy in the bar. Yeah. <laughs> um, he and Artie Call go into a bar, find the other guy, a terrific uh, local New York actor, and they blow his brains out. And then they take, drag him out back and then they chop up his body with an axe and a hacksaw and put his limbs into a bunch of trash bags and carry him out. And then we meet Sean Penn. So essentially, these guys take over the gang at the beginning of the movie with the explicit goal of working with the Italians because Ed is sick and tired of being looked at as a second-class citizen over doing nickel-and-dime jobs um, in, on the West Side. So that kind of has set up and established all of Ed's um, backstory and what he was trying to achieve. Unfortunately, the movie at that point was about two and a half hours long. You know, we showed it to an audience with that opening. And when it came to the chopping up of the bodies, you got to remember you're about eight, 10 minutes into the movie now, I'd say half the audience walked out of the theater. Oh, no, no. Okay. Oh, yeah. Half. I mean, have you ever seen 200 people get up and leave a movie theater? It is quite a sight to behold. You know, as much as we all loved Michael Gambon and the way the sequences played, it just, uh, it was too much too soon. It was, it was too much exposition and um, it was too violent. I mean, both the, both guys getting shot in the head and then one of them getting chopped up. There was kind of, we tried cutting it back, but then it kind of lost its muscle. I mean, if you either kind of go for it, State of Grace was rated, you got it back then, it wasn't NC-17, State of Grace was rated X three times by the MPAA. And that was even after I cut that stuff out. And it wasn't until I edited down the murder of John C. Riley and the throat slitting there uh, because of the amount of blood, I could not get an R rating. It took me, on the fourth try, I finally got an R and got off of the X. But we were rated X for uh, a few months there. The violence in the film was a big issue. And, and that opening sequence was really violent. And uh, so we ended up cutting it out. And that opening scene with Sean and John Turturro across the river was actually a reshoot. Because we needed a new opening. And um, I, I, I couldn't just go to them in the Bronx. No one would know what was going on. So that's actually a reshoot that was shot in early 1990. That scene and then the scene on top of the rooftop where Gary talks to Sean, he pulls out the hands, the frozen hands. Yeah. That's also a, a, not a reshoot, but an additional. We didn't we never had those scenes. So technically, it's not a reshoot. It was additional photography. But those were two new scenes. Those are the two new scenes that we did in post-production to set up the story because we had had all the setup in those scenes that we took out with the old school gangsters. I'd like to take a look at a few specific scenes from the film, starting with the scene in which Sean and Gary start the fire and then decide to sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, have a gentleman's bet and race out of the fire. Can you talk a little bit about how that scene was written in the script and if you made any changes while you're filming it? That, yeah, that scene, funny enough, that scene was in one of the earliest drafts that Dennis McIntyre did. Yeah, because there was always a sequence kind of like getting Terry back into the neighborhood um, sequence, I guess you'd call it. And and uh, so, yeah, that was that was something that had been around in a lot of a lot of drafts. And, and that was a, a McIntyre draft. And, and it pretty much stayed, you know, fairly intact because I always loved it. I always thought it, you know, really uh, defined both of their characters and particularly Gary so we shot that the entire all of State of Grace was shot in practical locations. There were no sets 
built for the movie. I mean, the bar, the shootout at the end was in a bar that we had redressed and rebuilt so we could shoot the hell out of it. But um, in the back room and all that. But but basically everything was on a on a street in a building. Nothing was on sound stages. The only thing that we built was that hallway or that corridor that we caught on fire. We built that in a warehouse on a dock uh, on the west side. It wasn't even in a in a uh, a soundstage and uh, was right on the water. And so we built that quarter because we knew we were obviously going to burn it down. And the thing that was supposed to happen is that Gary and Sean go in and they douse it with gasoline and they're getting ready to light it up. And then we're going to switch to obviously stuntmen running through the fire and running out the front door of a real building on fire later on. And of course, being that once again, as I described that we were in a method show, uh, meaning everyone was going to do it for real. Sean and Gary insisted that they run through the flames. So uh, we had to grease them all up and put the suits underneath their outfits and get them all, you know, there were two stuntmen there who were all kind of like pissed off. Like they had come to do it. I mean, they got paid anyway, but still they, they wanted to do it. And, and nope, Sean and Gary, uh, you know, and I, you know, I, I did the tracking shots along through the flames so that I could kind of stack up the flame bars. You do it all with flame bars and these, you know, flammable materials. And so they ran up and down through that fire all night. And, and you put this gel all over their faces and hands so that, that they don't get burned. And they just loved it. And I remember uh, Gary was dating Uma Thurman and she came down to watch and Robin came down to watch. So they're showing off for their girls and running through the fire. And then we went out to the building where they run out at the very end and they ran. There's a wall of fire that they run through. And that point, I was like, the stunt guys are going through the wall of fire. And they're like, no, no, we want to do it. We want to do it. And I was like, no. So I had the stunt guys do it first and show them like how dangerous it was and we filmed that and then gary and sean you know and uh we were all in it together and what are you gonna do i think i i think by then i had become kind of method director right along with them and they talked me into it and sure enough they ended up running through that wall of fire as well so that's them running out of the building too they were crazy essentially they'd they'd gone crazy well and that's what i want to talk a little bit about because i'm i watched that scene i think a couple times i just sort of Rewound it back, and I, I in a previous episode we've talked all about computer generated effects and and things like that. And there was nothing about that scene where I could go, "Well, that doesn't look fake." That, I mean that that looks real. That looks like it's really them running through the fire. So yeah. it's it's really awesome them. to find out that that's the case. It's really them. It's real fire. There's nothing added. There's nothing layered, and they really did it. And they're insane. And that's all I can really. <laughs> the guy. I mean, everyone went a little insane during the making of that movie, and 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 because it was just day after day after day of really intense conflict, um, generally speaking, going on. Um, and even if something started out light, like me, meeting John C. Riley down by the docks, it ends in a big fist fight with these guys. And, you know, um, and Sean ends up breaking an actor's nose and, and that day, too, and, and another guy's finger. And, you know, it was it, it was a different day from the bar fight. And, and it, you know, it just everyone really, really got into it. I remember I read years later, I mean, at least 10 years later, I was reading an article on Ed Harrison and the interviewer asked, you know, have there ever been a role that you had a hard time shaking? And maybe it got it got it might even have been 15 years later and, and, and he or more. And he said, um, yeah, I played this uh, character 
named, you know, Frankie Flannery in this movie called State of Grace. He said, and at the end of that movie, I really thought I was the guy and it took me a long time to shake it. And I didn't know that, you know, I had never known that, that like he had gotten so under his skin that he had a hard time shaking it. And, and I think that was true of a lot of people in that film. Yeah, it's very interesting that you mentioned that everything was a was a practical location. No, I mean, with the exception of building that small set, even that was on a dock, but that was still practical. Nothing was sound stages. Talk about the, and again, spoiler alert, if, if nobody has seen this movie, I mean, well, you're almost an hour into this conversation, so I will hope that you have at least, have you ha- if you hadn't seen the movie, you've at least stopped part of this conversation to watch it. But talk about the police funeral scene for a moment. A lot of extras in that scene, a lot of people dressed up as police officers. W- were any of them real cops used in that scene? You know what? Those cops, uh, and a lot of those cops were cops, you know, and a lot of people wanted to be a part of the movie. Um, there weren't a ton of movies being made at that time strictly in New York City. Uh, again, it was a kind of pre kind of the push to before the city was you know, promoting itself as come shoot New York like it does now. And um, and so, yeah, there were a, those were a lot. of. In fact, I want to say the dress Cops were all real dress cops. Okay. Now that I think about it, they were all real dress cops. All the guys walking with Totoro were cops. We had so many cops that were just around that show. They just loved. And, and the funny thing is that Sean, for as much trouble as he would get into, cops loved him. The New York cops and the LA cops, when he did colors, loved him. He got along great with, with cops. And, and so we had a lot of cops around. And um, so, yeah, that was all cops. But what's interesting about that scene is when you're looking at the Totoro side of the scene, I liked the way – this is the kind of control they gave me. But I liked the way that huge cemetery, uh, you know, looked kind of down the hill. And in the in the background was the World's Fair Towers back there. And, you know, it was, I want to say it was out in Queens. The reverse – of Gary and Sean sitting amongst the tombstones, smoking and drinking and watching, that's at a cemetery in Harlem. Oh, okay. okay. They are not at the same cemetery. So I, I didn't like the reverse because it was just like roads and buildings and it just wasn't visual and it wasn't moody and it wasn't like it, – it just didn't have the right – again, it didn't have the right character. So because the reverse didn't have the character that I felt was state of grace and the look and feel of it, they allowed me to shoot out that scene and then shoot the second half at a completely different cemetery. So when we looked the other way at them, they were amongst these old tombstones yeah. and trees and it, and it felt spookier and moodier to me. Like they were also, I wanted them to be able to hide because right, like here's these two obviously well-known, at least Jackie, super well-known bad guy to the cops and you know you got to be in a place where like you know you're kind of hidden a little bit back there and the, and the real cemetery in queens was as you could see it was flat and wide open there was kind of no place to hide so i thought they just look across and be like what the hell's he doing here you know what i mean like that's you know how cops are so again that was another reason i wanted to do it in a different location so i split those two cemeteries up and cheated the points of view so let's talk about the ending of the film the fantastic shootout that's happening at the same time as the St. Patrick's Day parade, which I have to assume is the real parade. So I have a ton of questions, including how you were able to shoot that parade, knowing that it only happens once a year. So let's really just sort of dive into the ending of the film. So when I came on the project, that that whole shootout wasn't in the movie. Okay. Um, 
and and I decided I wanted to go for I love the movie The Wild Bunch and I wanted to go for Terry's Wild Bunch. That entire sequence is inspired by the final shootout in The Wild Bunch. And if you notice the blood and all the squibs and the yep. flying big blood impacts flying through the air, that's all that entire style is taken from Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch and it's a very very old school style of of um squibbing and blood and all that stuff um so i then had this idea and of course it's a cliche but i was inspired by the godfather and so i loved always the cross cutting in the at the end of the first godfather so i said you know what i want to cross cut the biggest irish celebration in new york city with the violence of the irish and it's Irish on Irish violence, too. That's kind of, again, a bit symbolic or thematic. The troubles were still very much brewing at that time in Ireland. And I'd gotten to know a lot about that by working with you 2 and being in Dublin a lot and understanding the whole Irish on Irish conflict much better than I would ever have. So I decided to kind of wrap a bit of the kind of the thematic along with action and again orion allowed me to take five cameras out on saint patrick's day in march of 1989 two and a half months before we started principal photography okay okay we were still casting scouting i didn't have my dp yet and i had used a local dp that day and took out five cameras and much like i would have shot the live footage from rattle and hum i placed five cameras out there i had headsets on and, and a microphone, and I could speak to each camera operator. And we filmed, oh my God, hundreds of thousands of feet of film in one day and shot the whole parade, always knowing that I would cross cut that material with the shootout that I shot in August. That was in March. And later in August, I shot the shootout. There are some shots of Sean Penn walking through the, the parade, but I didn't have Sean because he was off making another movie. So um, I want to say it was Casualties of War or Were No Angels, one of those two. And and so he – I waited until March 1990, a year later. And that's Sean actually walking through the 1990 parade even though I had shot the 89 parade. That's very – Parade twice. But only oh, – the second time only was Sean and a steady camp walking through the crowd. That's all real crowd, real parade, the whole thing. When you shot the 1990 parade, how far away were you from the release of the film? Um, well, the film didn't come out until, I want to say, September. Okay, okay. So, so. Yeah, we were still editing. You know, we were still editing, and, and we were we actually – we did it around that those um, additional photography scenes. That was the same week I did that opening scene okay. with John Turturro and uh, the rooftop scene. So the so those two scenes and the parade were all done right in March. We edited those together, and then we took the film to Rome to be scored. The film was done. We just needed to slot those scenes in. Talking about the shootout for a moment, uh, you make the decision to shoot the film at a substantially different frame rate. I'm wondering if, like with The Wild Bunch, drew inspiration for that actual shootout. Uh, was there any inspiration that you drew from for your decision to shoot and at a different frame rate? Well, um, the inspiration for that came from, again, two, two movies, The Wild Bunch and and uh, Brian De Palma's Untouchables. Okay. So The Untouchables, you know, the, the sequence in the uh, inside the train station, yeah. as well as, as The Wild Bunch. Probably a little more Wild Bunch than Untouchables, but essentially both. 
the the frame rate, most of it is at 120 frames per second. And again, this is all on film. This is before you have things like the phantom camera that can go a thousand frames per second. We burned through and I shot it with three cameras simultaneously. So I'd always do a, a wide, medium and close of the same thing. And um, we shot if you if you look at it, actually, you know, we shot I shot it completely out of order. I shot all one direction looking into the bar and we shot the hell out of that. And then we turned around and we shot all the other direction looking toward the windows and toward Sean in the bar. So the two ends of the bar in essence. Um, and and sometimes I would I would shoot uh, different frame rates um, on different different cameras. So sometimes one camera would go 48, one would go 96, one would go 120. But as as I saw the dailies and as I you know, got deeper and deeper in it. So it took five days to do the shootout. Okay. Um, the, the, after the first couple of days, I realized that the 120 frames per second was really working the best. So that's what we ended up focusing on. And that's the majority of what you see is at 120 frames per second. Again, just, you just look at the wild bunch and you'll, you'll see why. Okay. So I got a couple of very interesting questions that I honestly don't know the answer to. I have to imagine that these cameras, the ones that shoot at 120 frames per second, they have to be very loud. How loud is a camera like that when you're shooting? These area cameras were not even sound cameras. They're they're actually high speed cameras. So they go. Yeah, that's exactly what I was wondering. Yeah, like a blender. I mean, literally. And there's three of them. What was so cool back then? Back in my day, what was so cool about film? And look, Nolan's still shooting film. There's guys out there still shooting film, and there's a reason why film brings attention to a set because even when you're shooting at 24 frames per second you hear the camera go on you know the mag is moving and you know film is rolling you can't just leave it on all day film is rolling and you call action they say speed you say speed you call action like i don't even have the right order anymore (laughs) and they go you call cut and they turn off the camera and you hear it grind down and especially in slow-mo it was exciting you're like Roll A camera, roll B camera, roll C camera, action! Bam, 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 bam. See that? And there was no playback in slow motion. There was no playback. There was no video playback. I had live video feed. That's it. And I'd watch it live, and I'd say, and I'd have to make a decision if we got it or not. No one came back and watched playback. There was no playback on State of Grace. None. So. No one's coming back and checking out the takes and saying, let's try this and let's do that. It was all we did it or we didn't make a decision, work from your gut, move on or do it again. And I'll tell you, when you're in these – look, I love the Area Alexa. It's a beautiful camera and I've gotten great results out of it. And look, you know, Roger Deakins is using it. How can I argue? But there is something different in the tension that film rolling through a camera creates on a set. People know it's game on. With these digital cameras now, you leave them rolling and say, go again and go again. I forget to call cut now sometimes these digital cameras because there's no tension to it. You're not burning film. It's a, it's a digital file. It's a card. Yeah. Bring out another card. It's it's ones and zeros. And and it, it can look great. I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that's going to tell you that it, it looks like crap because – it can look beautiful done the right way, but you lose the tension. It's so funny you ask that. No one asks me about the sound a camera makes, and I'm always on the set whenever 
you know, we're just, and people are lollygagging and walking into the shot nowadays and talking over it and forgetting to turn off the camera. Hey, the camera's rolling. You see the red dot is going, it's ridiculous. Like home movies. I'm like the tension of film grinding through that sucker, man. It got everyone on their toes. And I think even the actors, I think, but that's just me. You know, it's almost as if these makers of the digital cameras couldn't come up with like a little speaker that could go on top of the camera that every time you turned it on, it would simulate the sound of film running through it. I was just shooting a commercial a couple of weeks ago and I said, you know what Airy Auto Invent is a little, is a little <laughs> like MIDI thing that goes on the side of the camera like, Wee! Exactly, yeah. When you turn it on and off because it would make everyone freaking pay, it's drive the sound guy crazy, but it would make you pay attention. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing, the whole... Technology is such – it's such an amazing, incredible thing that it's done on so many levels. And on, an, on the other hand, it's made some things too easy. It's just too easy to say, yeah, and then we'll blow up every building in New York City and that will be our ending. That's not, that's not an ending. That's not – blowing everything up is not an ending. It's no longer interesting. When is anyone going to learn watching buildings crash to the ground – which, frankly, for me, since 9-11 hasn't been interesting, but that's not interesting, man. But they're going to keep on doing it, just chop up buildings and <laughs> pretend it's dramatic. I mean, putting aside the uh, you know, the, the shooting, the extra shooting you did for the St. Patrick's Day Parade and a couple things like that, how, how long did it actually take to shoot the film? It was a 55-day shoot, okay. um, you know, so essentially three months. And and um, then we did, I think, three days of that additional photography. So I guess like 58 all in. It, again, it was so reasonable. It was so correct. It, was, it wasn't too long. It wasn't like one of these things you hear these guys make movies for 100 days. I'd say to myself, I don't even know what I'd do for 100 days. I mean, I'd shoot two movies. You know, so to me, I like to keep a page. You can probably get the sense from how I talk that I have a certain amount of energy and I like to keep it moving and get it done and get on the set and get going. I don't ponder and sit around and gaze up at the sky. I like to get it done. And, and, but man, you know, that I did, you know, I did the veil in, in less than 25, I think. And it was, you know, or maybe like 20, I forget now, but it was so fast. It was just like, go. it was like a, just a, a race as opposed to state of grace. If we wanted to do Sean Penn's monologue, his State of Grace monologue was 32 takes, 32 takes. And the monologue is like seven minutes. A mag of film is 10. So you burned a mag on every take. So you're looking at 32,000 feet of film, (laughs) you know, for that monologue. And it was worth every single one of them. And we had the time and the support to do it. Interesting. On the veil, I got two takes. So were you there for the entire editing process? Oh, yeah. Well, Claire Simpson edited the movie. She had won the Oscar for Platoon. She'd also done Wall Street. Um, and uh, that she came off that onto State of Grace. And uh, she's an incredible editor. Still is out there doing great work. And, and you know, we edited on film. You know, you, you, we did on a flatbed editor uh, uh, on a chem. It was called a chem back then. And, um, yeah, every single day. I I went as soon as we wrapped the movie every single day she and I are in the room together chipping away at it I loved it you know I loved what was really interesting about editing on film and and don't get me wrong one of the things technology that I do like is you know the avid post-production workflow in terms of being able to try things is really incredible and it's it's really I don't miss editing on film because the the time it took 
you know, to literally chop, splice, tape. Then you had to chop, splice, tape the sound. You know, remember for every splice, you had to do the sound and the picture. You had to run them simultaneously on on these these plates uh, on the flatbed. It took time. It took a lot of time. But there was also because of that, you made your decisions very thoroughly and very carefully, and you really looked through the takes and you really decided, okay. This is what we use for that line. This is what we use for that. And you went back through this. And it, you would explore everything and then edit it. What happens now? You edit it. Yeah. Because big deal. You just whip in the new take. You just you know, go to the new clip. Go to the new clip. Click on that. Drop and drag. Push it over. Swap it in. Swap it out. I mean, it's incredible and it's really fun. I mean, I, I love, you know, digital editing. And, and I've done a lot of it. But but let me see. Let me see. Three o'clock high, state of grace, final analysis, and heaven's prisoners were all done on film. Okay, yeah. So my first my first digital editing film was Entropy, which I edited myself. There was something really um, thorough, kind of tortoise in the hair, if you will. I think that that film editing was the tortoise, but it was slow and steady and thorough. And if you had the right person doing it, and if you had the right point of view, I don't know. There was something kind of solid about it whereas when you're editing digitally you always feel like there's another version in there there's another version we could try what if we took that out and swipped that like you're always kind of rethinking rethinking maybe even second guessing whereas when you would get something done on film you're like we are not peeling that apart you would have to what they do call reconstitute the film which if you wanted to peel apart you'd have to take all your edits peel them apart put them on hooks and then rebuild the daily roll in order, in sync, to then just be able to watch it again because you chopped it all up, right? Now to be able to watch the takes again, you had to reconstitute the role, watch the role of film you filmed, and then re-edit that role. So when you had something that worked, you did not mess with it. And, and with State of Grace, we get a scene done. I'd be like, that's it. It's done. Don't touch it. Put it aside. And you literally put the role aside. Now, right? You jump into any scene you want and tweak it. You know, they call it, I don't know, your audience, they call it frame fucking. You get in there and just just fuck with it and just mess with it and just, you know, screw with it and swap it out till the freaking cast moment. Again, I think that's undermined. That's undermined the, I think, more classical cinematic qualities that went into movies that were made and cut on film. It's too facile. Okay, so after all the editing, the film score, you have a finished film. You're ready to present it to Orion for distribution. Take me through what happens next. So what happened was we finished the movie and we took it out to that preview I mentioned earlier where 200 people walked out. That was the first time I ever screened the movie for an audience. So this guy gets chopped up, 200 people walk out, it's about a 400 person theater, John C. Riley gets his throat slit. About another 150 walk out. So, by the, John C. Riley, what are we about? 25, 30, 40 minutes into the movie. 30 minutes into the movie, uh, there's 50 people left in the theater, and those are the hecklers. So from there on, those people stay and heckle the movie. I kid you not, shouting at the screen like like Sean's crying during the state of grace, and like cry, John Ben, you pussy, go ahead, cry. I'm like an all the Orion execs are there. My girlfriend's there. I'm sitting next to Claire Simpson, my editor. She's like 
she and I are practically starting to cry. I mean, it was a disaster. And, you know, we went back to the hotel. It was in Washington, D.C. And we went back to the hotel and everyone was like a funeral. Oh, my agent was there. Everyone. It was awful. There were like 20 people had come to see State of Grace. And it, it was, I think there's a thing called, when you screen a movie, they do these test screenings. I'm sure a lot of your audience has been to test screenings with the cards. And the thing about those test screenings, there's a thing called the top two boxes. Excellent, very good. And the bottom three boxes are good, fair, and poor. Well, all they care about, if you ever go to these things, are the top two boxes, excellent and very good. And what they want you to get is at least 80% in the top two boxes, excellent, very good. Um, they, they, Anything below 70, they get very worried about your movie. Well, State of Grace scored a 14 in the top two boxes. So... Of a sample size of 50 people, but nevertheless, and I think all the rest were like in fair or poor. So it was an unmitigated, just the sinking of the Titanic that night. What was interesting was I found out the next day that the audience had not been informed that the film was rated X for violence at that time. And it had been told them as an Irish family drama. Oh, no. Not mentioning a violent gangster story with people who chop people's heads off and hands. So we had one more screening, and this time of the same cut, and this time I stood at the door and made sure that they told every single person that came in that the film, which was at the time rated X for violence and language, that if they didn't want to see that kind of movie. And some people left, some people stayed, and the same cut of the movie scored a 70, I think 70, 72. But not good enough. So that was kind of – the truth of the matter is, is that that testing process is the most important step in any film's release. And if you score – you know, so for instance, we did Gridiron Gang and it scored I think a 92 the first time we showed it and then it did a 93 and then it did a 94. Three different, they actually made me do two more screenings to prove because they thought it was a fluke. You get support and you go out in two, 3,000 screens. And and like we did for Grand Game. State of Grace went out in 100 screens and was out for um, 10 total days. I think it grossed $2 million maybe. So it was a gigantic flop. Um, nobody saw it. It just was deemed to be not commercial. And to top it off, we were released the year of uh, Goodfellas, Godfather 3, King of New York, and with Walken and oh the Cohen Brothers movie with Albert Finney, um, uh, not Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing. Yeah, Miller's Crossing. Okay, yeah. yeah. Miller's Crossing. So yeah. Miller's Crossing, Godfather Three, Goodfellas, Gangs of New York, and State of Grace, all in the same three month period. So the critics had seen a lot. So we all got bunched together. The reviews were, you know, we were kind of dismissed. So State of Grace kind of came and went and died a very fast death. It didn't help matters that unfortunately Orion Pictures were going bankrupt at the time and closed their doors within a year of that. So they didn't have a lot of money to spend anyway. So they, but they kept me on, they kept my deal. We were going to make more movies here. Like they liked the movie. They just knew from the testing, or at least they thought from the testing, it wasn't commercial. So they weren't going to throw marketing money after something that wasn't going to make its money back. 
So they the movie cost nineteen million to make, but uh, they they decided to go with a small release, and that was that. So it's now been twenty seven years since this film came out, and you know it's interesting, Phil. Everyone I talk to that has seen the film, and I don't just mean hardcore cinephiles. I mean I put it out there on Twitter that you were coming on the show, and the response was overwhelming. People couldn't wait to listen to this conversation. I. I honestly feel like the film has an above cult status. I think it's one of the seminal gangster films that have been made in the past 30 years. So my question to you is, what do you think the legacy of State of Grace is 27 years later? Well, it's funny. I look at it, I, I kind of look at it two ways. The first, the first legacy of it is what happened at the time because it changed the direction of my career. I was really, I'll, I'll be honest, I was proud of the movie. I really liked the movie. I loved the cast. I knew how lucky I was to have them, how lucky I was to have Jordan, Claire, Patrizia, and of course, Ennio. <laughs> I knew what I was, you know, had, had been so lucky to be a part of. And I really felt good about the film. And, and I was devastated by its failure. And not even so much its financial failure, which obviously, you know, it's hard not to get caught up in. It's just, it's hard not to. You say you're not gonna, but then, you know, when you do nothing, when no one goes, it's it's disappointing. But even more so, it was just basically kind of ignored. It was yeah. kind of that, you know, tree falls in the forest. If there's no one there, it doesn't make a sound. Well, in the case of State of Grace, it did not make a sound. And I panicked. I panicked. And I took Final Analysis, which was a movie I had very mixed feelings about making. Naturally, once I was into it, I gave it 100% my best shot. But I had turned down the movie several times. And when State of Grace failed, they came back to me because the guys at Warner's had liked the movie, liked State of Grace. And because it, if it had just done okay, I think I would have held out and pursued something of my own that was closer to my heart, something closer to me as a filmmaker. But I panicked, like I said, and I dove straight into what was at the time a very big budget studio movie with a guy coming off a pretty woman. And I took it because I was scared. And I was scared that Three O'Clock High had flopped. Rattle and I had done okay. It was a concert film, but you know, it kind of didn't count. And here I was playing with the A-team. And let's face it, I was playing with the A-team on State of Grace. And it failed. So I was like, wow, I had better go make a commercial studio movie or this isn't going to last very long. And unfortunately, that experience, you know, turned out to be a bad one for me and affected my future decision making as well. But it all kind of trickled down from the kind of shock and disappointment of, of State of Grace. Had I been thicker skinned, had I been tougher about it, I should have, in retrospect, hung in there and, and let State of Grace play out for a little while. But, you know, you got to remember, this is before the big DVD, you know, where you could buy a DVD for 15 bucks. Yeah. DVDs back then were like 50, 60 bucks. Like they were expensive and people didn't buy them and watch them. There was no, there was no, I mean, in fact, um, State of Grace didn't come out in DVD for at least a decade. The afternoon is VHS only and, you know, and, and, and fit and, and it cropped for your TV. Oh yeah. You know, yep. so it was crap. And, and I just, there was just no way to get anyone to see the movie other than like get a print to a studio and set up a screen. It wasn't like today where you could say, here, here's a file, check it out. So it wasn't on Netflix, you know, where people could just stream it. Uh, in fact, I don't think it's on Netflix or Apple TV even now. Um, I'm not sure, but I don't think so. But anyway, it pushed me, or I allowed it to push me 
in a direction that I would have otherwise that I had already decided not to go in. But I had that kind of panicky fear. And so I, I took something that although I had, again, some great experiences with Dean Tavalaris and Jordan Cronenweth and George Fenton and on that film, Kim Basinger and Uma, I I, I, it, I didn't stick to my guns. So anyway, um, there's that. And then now, and then there's the legacy of it now. And the legacy is now is that, yeah, it's the movie that Three O'Clock High and that one of the movie that people tend to want to mention. You two fans mention Rattle and Hum, of course. No. But yeah, it's the film that, that everybody tends to want to talk about, which is both really nice and at the same time, you know, kind of a little, uh, it's a little... It's in my past, you know what I mean. It's in, it's, in, it's it was a long time ago, and I wish we were talking about in the same way about a movie I'd made last year or the year before, which but, which we did you know, by the way, <laughs> which we yeah, did. <laughs> so, we did. We did. I want I, mean, I want to put that out there. I wouldn't compare the veil and state of grace. <laughs> right? No, I know. Let's be honest. I'm kidding. I'm and kidding. I, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know we did. You're right, okay. and you were one of the few who did, which was incredibly nice of you, and okay. and and was a really nice piece. But I think that you know, what, I guess what is disheartening is that I don't think anyone could get State of Grace made today, except Martin Scorsese. I mean, you couldn't even do it, then, you couldn't even do it with the location. You couldn't even no, film it in New York and have it look. No, look I mean, no. this one thing I want to say: you talk about sort of the classic era of cinema, and how these things have you know they're they're not done anymore. You may have created one of the last films to show an era of New York that no one will ever see. I mean, that to me is a legacy in itself right there. Uh, well, you know, what's really funny, I, I kind of feel the same way. There aren't that many New York movies in the 90s that were street driven, you know. Um, and you're right. I mean, it, it they're really because Lamette kind of finished his run and Scorsese went away from New York for a while and, um, you know, Spike Lee was doing some New York stuff. It was kind of more Brooklyn-y kind of feeling yeah. as opposed to the Manhattan, Manhattan. There were some romantic comedies and stuff, but not the gritty, aggressive New York City. You know the movie, the show, I should say, I called it a movie, but that, that show, The Night Of, I thought yeah. really yeah. did an incredible job of capturing a version of New York City that is that was really special and really really interesting i loved the way they shot new york city and it reminded me of of a similar kind of approach that i tried to take where it was very specific vision of the city and um and that i thought really captured it just god i love that series there's just incredible piece of filmmaking and writing but anyway and acting but i um so yeah i think i was really lucky in that regard and i and i'm really glad to have had that document i think it's really cool that those actors who all went on to have incredible careers of their own were in a movie. I mean, think about it. John C. Riley, his own huge career. John Turturro, his own huge career. Sean, Gary, Robin. I mean, it's ridiculous. And I got to be with them all together at once. And that's never happened before or since, you know, with that, with that group. Um, yeah. And so I feel, I feel so lucky. I do. It's only kind of keep, we're so lucky and, you know, kind of just like blessed in that moment for it all to come together. But at the same time, it's tough because I still want to be making movies like that. I still want to be figuring out. And I've been involved. I've been connected to so many scripts that were in the same vein, not Irish mob, but totally right now there's one set in LA that I'm called rogue that I'm attached to. That is very state of grace-ish and very dark and very noir and very tough and, and character driven. And, 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 you know, and it has action in it, but it's, I can't get it made to save my life. 
Like, no, who's making that movie? Who's going to pay for that movie? Who's going to distribute that movie? Why? Why would they? And it doesn't need one CG effect in it. Why would they make that movie? Oh, I think that'd make it because it's a good script with great characters and great performance opportunities, and it's really compelling. And but what would a movie like that cost to make these days? The normal way, I think you could do it for 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 even fifteen less than State of Grace. Um, but because that is there, there is some. I mean, now I I know ways to save. What they give you to make it, I think you'd be lucky to get five. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Just curious. Yeah, I was curious. Yeah. I think you'd be lucky to get five or six, and I think very lucky. It's not doable for three just because of the nature of, of the amount of scenes you have to shoot. It's all over L.A. You know, it's kind of this – it's about a road cop. And um, and you – you know, so I just say to myself, look, there it is. It's tough. It's gritty. It's thematic. It's emotional. It has heart at the center of it. Um, it's about a haunted past, a guy with a haunted past that comes back to, you know, to get, catches up to him. The chickens come home to roost, so to speak. And, and I can't, you know what I mean? And it's just, you can't, you can't get any traction on it because no studio or even outside financier wants to make a state of grace like movie. So you got to understand there's kind of a bittersweet thing that the movie that I'm really proud of that people mention most often to me is State of Grace. Yet at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but I'm, I feel like, whether it's true or not, I feel like I'll never not get back to Sean, Gary, and Ed, but I'll ne- even the genre, let alone who's in it. Right. No, no, no. Okay. Well, I, I, I what do we say? Yeah, so they end yeah. on that downer note. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, wah, wah, wah. Well, yeah, and I'm just kind of like, well, you know, hear that, but <laughs> anyway, no, no, I'm, I'm, I mean, that's all on the record. I mean, I mean it. I just, it's just, it's the state, you know, it's just that dramatic. Let's okay. So here's the here's the bottom line: dramatic filmmaking is kind of off the table. Now, Dunkirk is a big drama, but let's face it, it's a war movie. It's got huge epic stuff going on whether it's real or cg or whatever i've seen the trailer you've seen the trailer it's massive it is not a street movie you know mean streets taxi driver uh prince of the city serpico dog day afternoon you know like those like you know even raging bull period piece but still a street movie these are movies like you know french connection oh my god come on that's on tv now yeah. That's on TV. That's Fargo. That's Better Call Saul. That's Breaking Bad. That's, um, you know, HBO does it. Um, Night of. But but there's something about a filmmaker with a two-hour discipline of telling a beginning, middle, and end, like, a, like they used to do in theater, two-hour play. You had to tell your story, set it up, pay it off, make it all come together in one – it's different than eight hours or 12 hours. And that's a whole other thing that blows my mind. I mean, Breaking Bad is Shakespearean on a level I can't even begin to comprehend. Seriously. Blows my mind. Like, I literally don't know how they did it. No. But a movie made by a filmmaker with a vision that's about the world we're in, the, the street-level world we're in right now, I think can be special. But unfortunately, it doesn't play to the 60% that – matters which is the rest of the world i suppose and and you know so there you have it but maybe you know maybe there's a way around that well, never know we'll we see. we we've 
You, I mean, you just don't know. I mean, that's the whole thing. I got to leave it. I got to, we got to end it on. We just don't know what's going to happen. Right. I mean, we, 10 years ago to say some of the stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes, uh, 10 years ago, wasn't even thought of. So, Netflix. I remember when Netflix switched over to streaming and everyone was like, what is this crap? This, it doesn't even work. It won't play. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And now Brad Pitt's starring in movies for Netflix streaming. Right. So, so that's exa- making a hundred million dollar Will Smith movie. They're doing like, so you're right. But here's what I'm trying to figure out. I'll leave you with this. So here's my my thing that I'm literally sitting in the room right now trying to figure out is how to make movies for nothing. Because the, 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 when you – say you're in a rock band. Once you buy your guitar and once you buy your computer, you can plug in and make music yeah. for essentially nothing. And if your friends bring their stuff over, same thing. If you're a novelist, if you have a piece of paper and a pen, you can make – Create your story, create your – for free, for nothing. You start out you know, you can and show it to someone and say, here's my book. I've been doing this and show say, for four years based on equipment I bought four years ago, and I haven't spent any more money. So you are an example of what I'm saying. You're yep. creating content. You're creating entertainment. Yep, trying to, yep. Your movie for free, and, and, and you're reaching people. Yep. You're reaching people. You have a fan base. You're reaching people. You're expanding. Look, last time I talked to you, you didn't have the studio you're in right now. Exactly. Yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how to do what you're doing for filmmaking. And this is where I should not complain about technology because that's where technology becomes my friend. Is that is that really inexpensive? So, you know, all things considered, technology exists. So I'm trying to come up with projects that are inexpensive to shoot that exist in the real world and get actors who are willing to do something interesting for the sake of doing it, for the art of it, for the art of the cinema. They go do commercials, go do TV, go do movies, go do whatever. But I'm talking, in this case, unknown people who are up and coming and still willing to try. And I'm just going to, I'm just really concentrating on how could I apply what I do or don't know to filmmaking at an extremely low cost and very close to free because then all bets are off. Well, I will say to you this, when you figure that out, I promise you the audience already exists because people are starving for content outside of what's playing in the movie theaters these days. And you know, that's the thing is we, we, we kind of talk about technology makes things too easy. Sometimes the, the bottom line is, when you have that content created, there are so many content delivery systems that are free yep. that for you to share with the audience. So I'm saying that, you know, when you figure out how to make the content, delivering the content will not be the hard part. I think getting eyeballs on the content won't be the hard part. It's, you know, what do you do once you get the eyeballs on the content? That Well, that's heartening. That's very heartening to hear coming from someone who's out there doing it you know, is really making it happen. And I, and I think that, and want to hope that's right. And I think it is right. And I think that just, you just gotta, you know, I think I personally, I can't speak for anyone else. I'm too attached to the notion of studio filmmaking or even studio distribution or even independent filmmaking and distribution, you know, um, where you go to Sundance and someone buys your movie for three million and still it goes out in 50 theaters and still you got to compete with. But I'm like, screw all that. You got it. All I want to do is tell stories, you know, and tell stories on film. Now, granted, it probably won't be on film, but, you know, you know what I mean? I, and and tell tell cinematic 
stories. You know, I think a lot about it. I think a lot about John Cassavetes. And I think about like what John Cassavetes would be doing with technology today with his like group of actors and the stories he wanted to tell. And imagine what he could do with he'd probably be making films on an iPhone. And he people, didn't care. And that's I mean, that's and that's the thing. I mean, we are just so in a the unknown is is really that it, it is really, truly unknown. But I am of the mindset and the belief that, you know, once you create the content, your audience will be there. And what you do with what you do with the, the audience uh, from that point on, really, that's then it's in your own hands. But well, that's what I'm that's that's what I'm putting my mind toward, because, you know, kind of the the other version is creating a very specific thing in general, in general. Um, and I got to figure out a way around that. Well, I mean, we're going to, you know, I know this isn't going to be the last time you're going to be on the show. So mm-hmm. and I, I look forward to, you know, you know, keeping up to date with you on the on these on this process and what and what you're doing. And, and that would be great. I that would be great. I love these conversations. It actually helps me focus. It helps me focus on on what I think and I believe and what I hope to do. So it's really, really believe I, I get a lot out of it. So thank you. Well, absolutely. And and for the listeners out there, website, your website address is uh, philjuanodirector.com. Absolutely. So my name, director.com. Okay. So Phil, thanks again for joining us and, and we'll have you back really soon. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Dana. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash How Is This Movie. You'll find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.